Welcome back to episode 86 of Warrior's Den with the lead instructor or head instructor of Krav Maga Israel, Ron Engelman. But before I get into Ron's background, let's remind all our listeners that this podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. So if you like the podcast or you want to support us, you can do a few things. Now, the free things that you can do that are super easy is you can follow us on Instagram at Urban Tactics Krav Maga, Facebook at Urban Tactics Krav Maga, and of course, you can check out us on Twitter at Urban Tactics KM, though it's not any original content there, and you know, Twitter. You can also check out our blog. Uh, I or others make posts usually on a weekly basis on a variety of topics from self-defense to other things related to it. You can check it out at utkmblog.com. And if you really want to support us, you can click on the support us tab and you can donate some money to us to help us keep this content coming. Uh, You don't have to, of course. It's always much appreciated. There is a uh, option there. But if you want a little bit of something for your money, you can go to utkmu.com. That's separate from the blog because the blog is utkmblog.com. utkmu.com. And you can check out the curriculum as we teach it. So all it is is how we teach the curriculum in order and in a structured format. Uh, Whether you're an instructor in another organization and just want to see how we do it or you are away from your home school and want to see Uh, what we do and learn or just broaden your horizons you can check out either a monthly or annual subscription Uh, there are beginner options and novice options the advanced curriculum isn't quite ready yet but it will be there as well right obviously Krav Maga needs to be learned in person but for many people retaining information can be difficult so that is where online comes in so you have utkmu.com you can sign up there and it is no more expensive than a cup of coffees, coffees a month. So there is that. Now, I don't know which URL I'm going to put out yet. I am going to have a shop, online shop, where soon I'm working on it, uh, where you can buy our uh, UTKM gear. I'm going to start with our basic stuff that our students wear. We did a redesign, so, so we're super excited about that. But we're going to start putting out a variety of clothing options and fight gear. So be aware that is coming. I don't know which URL I'm going to put out for that yet. So I'm not going to give it to you. Just be aware if you like our logo and you like our motto and you like all that stuff, we were we will be having clothing uh, in the future for purchase anywhere in the world because it's easy to ship clothing, though expensive to ship out of Canada. We'll see. So there is that. And if you are in town in Metro Vancouver, in British Columbia, Canada, you can train with us directly at urbantacticskm.com. That's our primary website. And you can get the contact information for us. And you can check out our schedule. If you're training from out of town, please send us an email, if, especially if you have uh, a background in Kramaga, so we can do an assessment and uh, see how you are if you want to do the novice classes. But you have to have a background in Krav Maga before I would allow that. Otherwise, if you're new, sign up for a free trial class, urbantacticskm.com. We are the top Krav Maga school in Metro Vancouver. So check us out. Okay, I think that's it. 
Oh, and don't forget, I always forget. Don't forget, if you're in Canada and want to have a firearm, you must get your position, possession and acquisition license. To do that, you have to take what's called a course, a training course, the Canadian Firearm Safety Course and Canadian Restricted Firearm Safety Course. We do offer that. There is a course coming up this month in July, and there'll be month, uh, courses every two months. So check that out. Uh, if you want to get your Canadian firearms license so you can have firearms in Canada. And if you have any questions about that, you can check out on the urbantaxkm.com website. Okay, that's it. So, Ron Engelman, let's read what it says on their website, kramagaisrael.com. So, he's been in a military career which spans across 20 years. Ron has trained hundreds of combat soldiers in Krav Maga. Setting himself apart from other Krav Maga trainers in the IDF, Ron's experience goes beyond the role of a trainer. He has led soldiers in combat, participating in dozens of counterterrorism operations deep within enemy territory, and he fought in the Second Lebanese War, earning the rank of Master Sergeant. Ron trains Krav Maga instructors from around the world and has certified instructors in Israel, U.S., Europe, Australia, and Asia. So he is one of the top instructors in Israel, you can check out Ron on Instagram, either at his personal one, personal persona one, Ron Engelman on Instagram, or uh, the Krav.Maga.Israel one, which is Krav Maga Israel's Instagram. So you can check him out there. And Ron, I believe, was originally from the U.S., moved to Israel, and then spent university in Australia because uh, his one of his parents was from there. But he explains all that details in the podcast. And you can check it out. So here, enough rambling on my part. Here is this episode. Krav Maga is not just a self-defense system. It is a way of life. Warriors Den is a podcast for Kravists, fighters, martial artists, warriors, politicians, and general citizens. Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Lucididi, your host, Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo, and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. Welcome back. I am here with head instructor Ron Engelman of Kramaga Israel. How are you today? Doing pretty good. Awesome. So let's just start with uh, how did life bring you to Kramaga and martial arts? Um, well, I've been doing Kramaga ever since I was a little kid growing up in Israel. Um, truth is, actually, I spent a couple of years in the United States in San Diego when I was young. And um, I'd been doing various other forms of martial arts since I was about <laughs> four or six years old. And um, Krav Maga just started in the United States. And my mom said, okay, I was probably 10 at the time. She said, I'd like you to do Krav Maga. This is new Israeli system. 
that um, that just started teaching in America. I want you to to try it out. And I said, Bruce Lee doesn't do Krav Maga. <laughs> Van Damme doesn't do Krav Maga. Yeah. Um, I don't want to do Krav Maga. But if you know anything about Jewish mothers, it should come no surprise that I started doing Krav Maga. So I've been doing it since I was about Krav Maga specifically since I was 10 years old. A couple of years after that, we moved back to Israel, and I was fortunate enough to be living right next door to Natanya. So mm-hmm. I had the, you know, the the place in Israel where Krav Maga was founded. Imi was sitting in Natanya. That's where he had his first civilian gyms, and all of his, you know, highest ranking instructors were over there. So I had the good fortune from a very young age to be training with a lot of, you know, the 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 biggest names of Krav Maga at the time, and you know, one thing rolled on to the next. I, I, I joined in, in, into the Israeli army. It was very important for me. I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a combat soldier. Uh, and I planned selections to go into there. But I guess Krav Maga always followed me because uh, when, during the second intifada, when there were a lot of close quarter combat scenarios, Krav Maga started playing a more and more prominent role in the military. And the Israeli army had an idea where they wanted the Krav Maga instructors that were training the combat soldiers to be combat soldiers themselves. Because what they found was when they were sending these non-combat soldiers who were professional instructors, that means all they did was teach. One, the soldiers didn't necessarily take them seriously because there's a divide, I guess, between who serves in combat, the war fighters, and the guys we call them in Israel, Jobnikim. Which yeah. it's kind of a derogatory term for people who the army is like a job. It's like a nine to five. They go home every day to their, you know, to, to their parents. So there's kind of that divide for combat soldiers to take non-combat soldiers seriously. But there's also this other part of it of in order to be able to understand the operational environment and the requirements of the soldiers and to adapt it for the training, it made a lot of sense that the people who were teaching it was Krav Maga were combat soldiers who first and foremost who were also Krav Maga instructors. So having been doing Krav Maga since I was a little kid, I was the obvious choice. I got sent by by my commanders to complete the Krav Maga instructors course. And I came back to serve in my unit as a sergeant, but also as the Krav Maga instructor for the unit. Uh, wait, what unit were you in? Um, so... It, Things changed a little bit mm. since the 20 years that uh, I was in full-time service. Um, uh, it's not, I'm still actively serving in reserves, but uh, it was the 50th uh, uh, Airborne Infantry Brigade of the Nakba. Mm. So um, we, back then, it was when just the second Intifada was breaking out, we saw, we saw a lot of combat. Okay, yeah, yeah. When I was there, I I served in Divati in 2009 to 11, so it was actually a pretty quiet time. So you got all the fun, exciting times. <laughs> well, it was it was quite it was a very interesting time to be in the military because our training, you know, people always say that the army trains to fight the last war, and there's certainly some truth to that. The war that just passed, not the future war, yeah. but the one that we just had. So our training is you know, as, as airborne infantry was to fight conventional warfare. We were f- training to fight the Syrian commandos in the Golan Heights. Mm. But then when the second Intifada broke out, we found ourselves fighting Hamas 
um, inside urban environments with civilians around, and it was nothing like you know the conventional warfare that we've been trained for. Mm. So we had to make a very, very quick adaptation and understand that the missions we were going on were nothing like what the army had been preparing. And it was a very interesting time because, again, the promise of Krav Maga came out. Um, Krav Maga has always been important for the army, but it's certainly more important in the type of CQB environments we were facing. And, and also the the i guess israel's always on the forefront fortunately or more likely unfortunately of, of battle because i was nearing the end of my service i was i was i was actually in the army enlisted during 9 11 and a bit before the united states were, were getting geared to go into iraq at the time um, we started seeing more and more specialists and you know different soldiers from the United States, all of a sudden, randomly popping up in on our bases and having in-depth chats with uh, with the commanders. So what was happening was the Americans, before going to Iraq, they understood that they were going to fight a war like hadn't been fought. And the Israelis, we were we'd already had some years' experience in fighting those type of wars, as we're familiar with today, Afghanistan and Iraq and all over the world. Yeah. So we yeah. kind of we kind of learned the we kind of learned the job on the fly and other people, other other militaries around the world were able to come in and, and to learn from our experience. Yeah, that's something I always, uh, you know, I always try to explain to people, you know, because in, in North America, everyone has their idea of the military is what they see in the movies a lot of the time. It's usually a representation of the Marines. And then I'll tell them my experience in the IDF and they're like, they're always taken aback about, so because it was, for me, it was like a very, it was very tough, but it's like a casual uh, compared to like the super rigid, structured, nonstop, like craziness of the Americans. And I always say it's, you know, they don't have time to mess around with the nonsense. And it's uh, duct tape and shoelaces. And <laughs> you just sort of figure stuff out and go, go and you, you find solutions to problems that you wouldn't otherwise because you're not terrified about the, the chain of command and, and the politics, you just kind of, as long as it's moral and ethical, hey, figure out a way, right? People are often shocked by that. Yeah, it's it's a very different, uh, it's a very different military environment. First of all, it's a much smaller army. Um, you know, in Israel, we've got our enemies on a doorstep. Like, you know, some of the places where I was serving, you'd be in a firefight and, you know, in, in the middle of, you know, of, of the hottest areas. And then you get on an APC and an armored vehicle. It drives you down to the nearest base. You hop on a bus and within 45 minutes, you're home, you yeah. know, eating lunch with mom. And I, I don't live in the, in the territories, right? I live in the middle of, of Israel near the city of Netanya, which is, which is like half an hour from Tel Aviv. Yeah. So our enemies and, and the people who want to kill us are right on our doorstep. And it's it's very real, and it's very I guess different. It's not, I'm not saying it's any more or less just different from you know when when you prepare and you fly with your unit overseas. It's very different from serving overseas, where everything is on our doorstep. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a interesting experience. It's like here the because I'm in Canada, the Canadian military, most of it is reserves, and it's it's uh, it's sort of like that where you know if they want to serve, you know they do their basic training and all that, and 
they can even do it over a course of multiple weekends, which as a taxpayer I hate because they're flying, flying all the way back and forth nonstop. Or they can do it in a, in a you know one chunk, and then after that they're supposed to go like once a week to the local base, and then if they want to do other stuff they can, because uh, our our military is very small in Canada compared to even Israel. You know probably five thousand standing combat troops at any given time, most of which are probably reserves. Uh, my numbers might be a little little out, but you know here the concept of military is like it's not a thing for most people. And if you, you guys, see, you guys are very fortunate. You got some very powerful neighbors that yeah. <laughs> uh, that have got your back. But I'm not sure thing, anymore, but <laughs> I don't yeah, know. That's but but the, the one thing about Israel is that that we've always done our own fighting, and and that's uh, people you know bag on about. Um, you know the the relationship, the relations that Israel has with the United States and so on, but not a single American soldier has ever had to step foot in. Like the Americans fought in in and still have bases um, where they're actively serving and protecting in Korea, in Germany, in various parts of of Europe. Where in Israel we hold our own. Yeah, we don't yeah. need military support. We we do our own fighting. We do our own dying, unfortunately, and that's that's just the way it always has been. We we rely on ourselves. That's a good thing. Yeah, I remember because I was on uh, Mitkanadam for a while, and they do have uh, foreign soldiers there, usually exchange of ideas and training, right? And then you guys are like, you can wear your uniforms and guns on, have your guns on base. As soon as you step off base, you're in civilian clothes. You're not allowed to do anything. <laughs> It's uh, probably quite shocking for some of those American guys that just can't handle. They're not in charge anymore. <laughs> it's pretty funny for me because I did, never thought I would see that. So, um, Kramaga in the military. Uh, how much of your time do you teach Kramaga in the military versus civilian, and how does that shift for you? That sort of difference in in teaching. Um. It really depends. Like so, mo most of my work nowadays is civilian. I'm still mm. actively serving. I'm actually just about this year. I'm I'm supposed to. I, I turn forty. Uh, that should be the end of my reserve training. But I'll probably stay on as a volunteer and continue yeah. serving in my unit. Um, uh, a typical, you know, unit like mine. We might do maybe. There is no. That's the thing with Israel. There is no typical. Um, on paper, we're supposed to do about three to four weeks a year of uh, of either uh, training or active uh, service. Usually, it, it, it I guess on paper really has no meaning because th th there's no sort of like standard. We might, you know, we're supposed to only be, be deployed so often, but you know, if there's a round with Gaza or if there's a second Lebanese war, whatever is happening, then we just get called. So yeah. as a reserve soldier, you're on call. And you get called up a lot. As part of that, like first and foremost, I'm an infantry soldier and I'm, I'm a commander. Um, I, I'm a warfighter. That's what I do. Uh, I also teach Krav Maga to my unit, and that that makes me quite unique because generally you're either a professional teacher or you're a combat soldier. Uh, because my unit goes to some interesting places, then Krav Maga is is quite up there in our skill set mm. so i do quite a bit of uh bit of yeah teaching over there too um especially if, if we're going to some specific hot zones and we have intel and stuff and, and we have had soldiers who've been who've been um attacked who've been stabbed who've been and the krav maga certainly 
certainly plays an important role. It's quite unique as an instructor. I don't think you get that anywhere where you train your practitioners, in, in this case, the soldiers, and then you deploy with them and you get to see the skill set and that you're training. Sometimes you even get to see it applied in, in real life. Whereas civilian concepts, can you imagine of, of training training one of your students in a civilian Krav Maga school and then going out with him you know, to a really, really dangerous neighborhood um, and then watching him get attacked? Uh, that just <laughs> doesn't, doesn't happen. Uh, it's really enabled me to hone in on one of, I think, the most important skill sets that are there in Krav Maga maybe back to what you said of weeding away everything that's not important and really focusing on what's, you know, what's the one thing that I need to be delivering here? Because often, you know, I might get, you know, hell, some places I I, I get 20 minutes with the soldiers, right? Sometimes it's ridiculous. Sometimes I'll get get a group of soldiers and they're like, okay, well, you have 20 minutes to do Krav Maga session. And after that, they're going to go uh, on mission. And there's a very good likelihood that somebody is going to stab them. Yeah. So what are you going to teach somebody in 20 minutes? How yeah. are you going to spend your time? And that's something that Krav Maga is well equipped to handle. Yeah. Um, yeah. As opposed to, I mean, I'm very fond. I, I, I love boxing. I love jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu. Um, I do all these sports. And, you know, if somebody came to you and said, look, you have 20 minutes to teach somebody jujitsu, you have... 20 minutes to teach somebody boxing like you'd laugh at them what 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 do you teach there's no point of 20 minutes of boxing there there really isn't but there is a point of 20 minutes of krav maga it's not ideal i'm not i'm not selling i'm not saying you should go out there and that's what you should do only 20 minutes of krav maga but i mean if it's a life or death situation there's certainly some things i can show you within 20 minutes that could very likely save your life yeah yeah because on that note it's like often when let's say an instructor in israel uh is comes in with the attitude you know because they always rush 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 do uh, and then goes to civilian school i've found if they don't really understand what they're doing or if they don't have a traditional martial arts background they sort of take that attitude to their civilian schools and they forget that you're training people who probably aren't as physically capable as the soldiers are and you you need that year development time and i'm wondering uh at least for sure in North America. I don't know about Europe. I'm not sure it's the case in Europe where it's, it's part of the reason it's led to sort of Krav Maga's, you know, quote, downfall in North America because of the quality of development. Because like, oh, I can just teach you in 20 minutes. And then they don't realize, like, because in the military, I'm getting, even infantry, I'm probably getting the top 10% of physically capable humans versus civilians. It's like this person can barely know their left from their right. Uh, and if you get an instructor who's really like, ah, I can teach Kramaga in 20 minutes and then tries to run a civilian school, uh, I've seen it go quite quite poorly. Um, what do you think about sort of that dichotomy of civilian military? 100%. Being a military Krav Maga instructor does not qualify you to teach civilian Krav Maga. Quite literally so, in fact, because the, the military Krav Maga certification that, that I went through, that, that anybody who's a Krav Maga instructor and a soldier doesn't qualify. You cannot teach Krav Maga to civilians in Israel with that certification. But besides the, let's say, the bureaucracy of it, uh, there's good reason because 
Okay, let's start with the, the most of the, and I'm, I'm now not talking about reserves. I'm talking about what you would, would have probably experienced, which is, uh, you know, full-time serving uh, soldiers, compulsory service, usually between 18 and 21. So, so you got to understand that the instructor themselves is also probably a 19, 20-year-old, right? With very limited life experience at that point. Um, also very limited training experience because, look, it's great to be, as somebody who's been training Krav Maga since I was a very young child, um, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily the same sk same skill set. Like, yes, you learn the moves, but because you learned Krav Maga as a child doesn't necessarily, and let's say you left it there, doesn't necessarily give you the skill sets to train Krav Maga as an adult. So basically what I'm trying to say is that these, um, you know, 19 year old Krav Maga instructors not not to bag it out not to bag them out because they do an important role but their skill set are limited and that's perfectly fine because the amount of information that's passed on is also fairly limited uh, depending on who you're training with and of course the more elite units have more experienced Krav Maga instructors um, some of the you know very elite units they have um, Krav Maga instructors who are professional that means that they've finished their full-time service. They're quite older, and they've they've signed on to be, um, you know, long-term Krav Maga instructors for that unit. But the majority yeah. of Krav Maga instructors, they're kids. They can teach you how to hit somebody with with a, with a, with the butt of a rifle. They can teach you how to block uh, against a knife with your rifle and a few basic skills. And that's all they need to do. Mm. That's not enough. Then, if you if you're teaching civilians. Also, the mission and the goal is different. You talked about uh, the clientele that walks in. So if I'm teaching soldiers, uh, especially combat soldiers, they're, they're, fit, they're fit guys and girls who um, have made it their mission to, to serve in these units that are quite difficult to, um, if not to get into, then to, to stay into for, from physical aspects and mental aspects. So these are, you know, these are the war fighters, yeah. right? They're not the majority of the army. They're not the majority of population. So you're right in that, but it goes on beyond there because I also have a very limited of time as instructor to train them, right? Because there's a lot of other very important skill sets that they're learning while they're while they're going through their training. They need to learn how to shoot. They need to learn how to orienteer. They need to learn how to do um, tactical exercise. There's so much of a skill set that's learned as soldiers, and the Krav Maga is the part of it. I'd even say a small part of it, an important part of it, but it's not the main part of it. And I might get, you know, with a unit, let's say if it was, let's say, the Givati Brigade, like you served, you served with uh, six months of... Uh, Basic training plus advanced infantry training. Uh, I believe it it, it was it, uh, it was still there at your time. Yeah. Krav Maga sessions. You might get you know if you're lucky, you might get maybe two to four hours a week, if that. Now and and you'll do that for a period of four to six, probably less. Yeah. Okay. A yeah. civilian who's coming to Krav Maga school, um, yes, on the one side I want to give them practical experiences right away, but. You know, the goal is for them to be able to keep on training for five, ten years, maybe take it as a lifelong pursuit and become instructors themselves, right? Yeah, so yeah. I need to have a much bigger field of knowledge over there yeah. as a civilian instructor. I also need to have good empathy, let's say, because the, at the end of the day, the civilian student is a paying customer. They're coming in because they see value and they want to get out of that. The soldier is not necessarily there because they want to be there. 
maybe they don't even understand the need of that. They go, why do I need to learn Krav Maga? I've got this uh, M4 Tavor rifle. Like, they're not necessarily easy customers to deal with. And they have zero tolerance for bullshit. They mm -hmm. don't care who you are. They didn't seek you out. They don't know, you know, how many stripes you have on the on your black belt. They couldn't care less. It's all about what can you teach me right now and why should I even listen? I've already had a pretty tiring week of training, right? Yeah. So it's a very different mentality and a good military Krav Maga instructor doesn't necessarily make a good civilian instructor and vice versa. A good civilian yeah. Krav Maga instructor doesn't make a good, necessarily a good uh, military instructor. They're two complete uh, different skill sets. Yeah, when, yeah, when I was there, so I did, I, I always forget, it's been so long, the, uh, the army has the, its own ulpan for uh, Olin, and uh, I did maybe four or five Kramaga sessions there, and then when I got into Givati, I did another four or five Kramaga sessions there. I did not actually learn anything new, because I'd been doing Kramaga for about a year and a bit before I came, just to prepare, but I, hilariously, the Krav instructor at the Ulpan was way harder. He was doing the full hour and a half, 45 minutes brutal, then the technique like you guys often do. And then in the combat, they're like, uh, yeah, we got half an hour. Uh, let's do some stuff. <laughs> I always found that quite comical. And it, it really woke up to the, the, the myth, at least in North America, they have, oh, you're an Israeli combat soldier. You must be able to rip people's heads off <laughs> you know, with your bare hands. <laughs> it's like, it's, no. It's not it's not true for any military, right? It's, yeah. it's this maybe thing that's been. Um, I've had I've had my fair share of experience working with different, uh, you know, military units from around the world in Israel and also also you know, throughout my my teaching, uh, or, you know, in, in in various different countries. And maybe Steven Seagal sold it to us that you know every Navy SEAL is uh, expert in hand to hand combat. Yeah. But that's certainly not true. Neither is it necessary. They need some very, very basic skills. But it, like, if you get to a point where you have to, you know, use hand-to-hand -hand combat, you failed somewhere along the way. And also, the the, the type of fighting you do hand-to-hand -hand is very different because you're there with a the team. It, it it never happens that you know you're one-on-one, -on -one, you know, for fight to the death against the you know the big boss or or something like that. So like like we see in the movies. So I, I'd get often, you know, commandos from different, like tough boys that, you know, they've been to Afghanistan, they've been to Iraq, like they've seen combat. And then when you go into Krav Maga, you're like, geez, this, this person, you know, can't, can't throw a punch to save their life. Yeah. And, and that's, look, that's okay. I mean, it's not great. Ideally, you'd want, you'd want a, a foundation level of, of, of training. And that's, of course, where, where we come in. But by no means do they need to be the equivalent of Krav Maga black belts or Jiu-Jitsu black belts or or anything anything of the such. So yeah, it's it's been sold that you know everybody in the Israeli army is a, is a is a bloody commando. But uh, first of all, war fighters in any army make a very small percentage of the soldiers, and even among the war fighters, um, the need for you know, proficiency in hand-to-hand -hand combat, there needs to be proficiency. They do not need to be experts. Yeah, 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 for sure. Now, uh, how did uh, Australia fit into your life plan? Because you were over there for a while and, and teaching Krav Maga. How, how does that fit in? So, 
my dad is originally from Australia. Mm. Um, actually, he was actually born in Czechoslovakia after the war. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Mm. Um, after the war, they got married and they had my dad. And he was only about a month old when they... Uh, they left uh, Czechoslovakia and they moved to Australia. The, the the communists were coming in, the Iron Curtain was coming down and, and they fled. And um, the younger brothers and sisters who already survived the war had already immigrated to Australia and they joined them over there. So my dad grew up in Australia and around the time of the Six-Day War, he came to Israel to, to, to you know... It, the Six-Day War, for anybody who's not versed in history, it was pretty clear that that was the end of Israel. Everybody yeah. around, you know, all the country, there was no way that this tiny new country was going to survive a fight against uh, against all of the Arab nations around, around, against Jordan, against Egypt, against Syria, against Lebanon, against Iraq. There was no way that Israel was going to survive this. So a lot of people, like my dad, you know, they, they had family in Israel, you know, and they said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to let this country be overrun. I'm not going to let, I'm, I'm going to go and join in the fight. So my dad immigrated to Israel. Um, he ended up joining the army. Um, he, was, he became an officer and that's where I was born. Hmm. But I've got cousins and I've got grandparents and all my dad's side is from Australia. I've got Australian citizenship. As a kid, I used to visit Australia quite often because my grandparents were over there. So I've always had a very strong connection to Australia and for me it was always clear that the moment I finished my military service when it came time to study I wanted to do it in Australia because I wanted to, to get to know this country that, that I felt was part of my my heritage part of mm. I felt also Australia very much um, so that that's how I arrived in Australia I went there to to study at university I completed a degree in psychology um, Krav Maga has always followed me everywhere I go so when I was a student I started teaching Krav Maga, and uh, and you know later after quite a few years of doing that, um, I set up a you know I opened up my own facility over there. Uh, some of my students became instructors themselves, and and so on, and it became this you know it became a a powerhouse of its own. And and nowadays it's a school that's still run by by my students and some of the students of my students. And it's it's a beautiful, beautiful gym that that uh, that runs over there. So I'm still there quite often. I go there a couple of times a year before COVID hits to train the instructors, uh, to oversee everything that happens over there. Uh, so that's that's my connection to Australia and to the Krav Maga Defense Institute, which is the name of the school that uh, that I um, that I established while I was living there. Yeah, because I think that's, uh, you know, the internet. I think that's the first, when I first saw you on the internet, uh, it was something to do with Australia. And then I started seeing you post more in Israel. I'm like, oh, okay, he's in both. <laughs> um, it was interesting, though, that you said you have a degree in psychology. Like, I uh, I didn't finish my full degree because I can't stand universities now, but I got my associates. Um, but I, I'm huge into psychology and, and, and mental aspects. And I have found it has helped my ability to teach Krav Maga extensively by really understanding how the body works. You know, so Krav Maga principle of work off the body's natural reactions. And I find a lot of Krav Maga instructors, they say that and they teach that, but they don't really understand that. So when I delved into the psychology and you start understanding, oh, it really works because... I think it's, it's enriched my teaching over the years. Have you found the same thing as well? 
100%. I find this psychological aspect to be absolutely fascinating. I think to be a good Krav Maga instructor, first of all, I would say you got to have a lot of empathy because you got to, like, there are two ways of teaching, teaching it. One is you can just, you know, some instructors, and, and that's normally the beginning phases. An, an experienced teacher will come in, they'll, they'll teach what they want to teach, they have the techniques, and they pass it on. And, and they, they teach for them. They teach what they want to teach. There's another way of going at it, of seeing where the student is at and really getting into their head and seeing what they need from you right now. What are the obstacles? What are the, what are the challenges? What, are the, the, what tricks are their mind playing on them when, when you take them into hard places and helping them overcome that. that? That's what I call a coach. Somebody who can, you know, who has, you know, they're not just there to pass on the material, but they're really there for you and they can get into your head. Um, that's one aspect of, it, of the teaching side of it. And I think that's true for anything, not just a Krav Maga instructor. But on this, on specifically for Krav Maga instructor, you need to understand violence, not just the mechanics of it, because that's what we teach. We teach, you know, if somebody comes, this is how you do a block, this is how you punch, this is why you should do it, this is the most effective way, and these are the reasons why. These are the mechanics of Krav Maga. But they're only a very small part of, of protecting yourself and protecting your loved ones. And you need to understand the full scope of what violence is, where you can meet it, um, what type of people will likely be there to attack you, what are their motivations so that you can uh, avoid, so that you can de-escalate, and too often that's neglected. People just focus on, you know, the physical aspects of Krav Maga, which are important. You can't do away with them, but they don't exist in a vacuum. And if you don't teach that as well, um, you really, then there's no difference between Krav Maga and MMA and boxing, because all you're doing is really, uh, you know, you, you're teaching, you know, how would I say? You're teaching a syllabus. You're teaching a set of, of techniques or, or moves and Far too often you're setting people up for like one-on-one -on -one bouts, right? Mm. And that's not what Krav Maga is designed for. Krav Maga is like boxing is about two guys, same weight class, same skill set. They're going to meet in the ring under the same set of rules where both of them are ready. Both of them are prepared for that. And then we'll see whose skill set surpasses. Krav Maga doesn't care about any of that. Krav Maga is about um, me as instructor. I need to teach a, a 40 five kilo woman, whatever that is in pounds, to be able to survive, you know, somebody wants to attack her uh, for sexual assault in a parking lot, right? Yeah. And it's a whole different kettle of fish. And if the only answer you have to that, well, in Krav Maga, we kick to the balls or we eye gouge, where nothing is that, you're really not, you're missing the whole point of it. Yeah. The whole point of it starts in de-escalation. Actually, I, I just recently recorded a podcast with uh, Professor Bill Von Hippel, who's, uh, I had the good fortune of being a student of his while I was at university. Um, his specialization is evolutionary social psychology. So he approaches from an evolutionary perspective, from the perspective of evolution, to understand what our reactions are. Why are we likely to behave when under threat like this? Mm. And why? And when we understand the why, we can start to work with it. We understand that, okay, if somebody challenges a guy in a bar who's 16 to 30 years old, what's likely going to be their instincts and what's going to be the impulses and where do they come from? Or, you know, if, if there's somebody who's targeted another woman for sexual assault, right, 
what's happening in the attacker's mind? What are they looking for? What are the type of things that are going to deter them? How did they choose their um, their potential targets? Now, th these are things that we spend, a f like anybody dealing in the self-defense aspect has some idea, spent some, some time thinking about these things. But if you really want to deep dive and you really, really want to understand it, the answer is in evolution. Evolution is giving us the interactions. You spoke about, rightfully so, that Krav Maga is built on instincts and natural reactions. And, 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 and often people say, well, um, you know, our ancestors had these instincts of, let's say, putting our hands up like so if somebody comes to attack us. And therefore, our ancestors who had these instincts, they were more likely to survive. But you can go much, much deeper than that. And also you can go deeper into the attacker. And if you start to understand what are things that are going to get the attackers to respond, not just physically, but the, the, the whole realm of things that can really help. So, so uh, Dr. Professor Bill Von Hippel, he was also on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of years ago. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And um, the evolution side of it is, I, I find it just fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I've been uh, exploring, figuring out how to explain uh, the fight and flight and freeze mechanisms uh, as well as sort of connect, connecting in a way that they can understand. Because like a lot of people who come into Kramaga, they're not necessarily, let's just say, you know, intellectual or education. They don't want to hear the talking. They want to punch the faces. And I'm like, okay, hold on a second. Like, you really need to understand because I know most of you aren't going to be here past three months. So let's let's get you to understand. And I've started connecting it to mental health in many ways and teaching the nervous system is no different if you're having a panic attack versus someone's attacking you and you're freaking out. It's a, trying to connect it all in a, a holistic way to, to, to make people be able to understand how their, their nervous system works and their reactions will you know, speed up or slow down. Uh, also connecting it to your, how to use your body. You know, Some people get the blank looks on their face and they'll pick it up in a year and other people are like, oh, I never thought it like that. You know, so it's, it's certainly there's tons of ways you can explore uh the human condition and and Maga <laughs> combined i think yeah so what what, what really blew my mind was i always knew something was missing but okay let, I, I paint the scenario as this okay let's say you know you're you're a guy and you're in a bar and you know somebody walks up to you and pushes you and and they're they're intent on fighting you with you What's, and we speak about fight or flight, right? What's the best possible response you can have in that scenario? What's the best tactical uh, strategy? And remember, the, 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 what's the goal? The goal is, you know, to, to not get hurt, right? So what's the best possible strategy when somebody comes up to you and starts to pick a fight with you? It's that obvious. You don't even have to ask. You turn around, you start running. Yeah. You don't even exchange a certain word, a single word. Somebody comes up, you say, what are you looking at? I don't even talk to him. I just turn around and start running as fast as I can. Yeah. Obviously, what, what's the likelihood that they're going to chase after you yeah. in that specific setting? Almost nothing. We're not talking about a terrorist with a knife coming. We're talking about in a bar, somebody wants to fight you to show all their friends that they're a tough guy. You turn around and run. There will be no fight. I guarantee it. Yeah. What's the likelihood of somebody actually doing that? Close to zero. Yeah. Now, why? Why? How, how can you explain that? Because here we have a, a scenario where I can tell you, if you do this, 
I don't guarantee many things. I'll almost guarantee that if you turn around and run, there will be no fight. Mm. Doesn't it make sense that that's what people would do? Yeah. But that almost never happens. What's the next best thing you could do? You don't say a single word, right? He says, you want to fight? Boom! You punch him right there. And then without a single word, you punch him as hard as you can, straight in the jaw, knock him down, don't give him any warning. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not talking about legally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but as far as survival goes, evolutionary survival, that's your second best bet. What percentage of people will do that? Hmm. Almost zero. The only person who would do that is probably a psychopath. It's yeah. probably somebody who's, who's there, there's something wrong with their wiring that they'll just go. What will most of us do? One of two things. Okay? But, but that already has got to get you thinking because we have two fight or flight. Yeah. Right. Both of them are almost surefire. Well, running is almost surefire. Number two is it depends how good your punch is and how big their jaw is. Okay. But it's mm. still it's it's still up there. But almost nobody will do that. Okay. Yeah. What will they do? Well, number one is depends. If you're also you know a um, blokey bloke and you're not too small, you probably push them back, and you probably go, you don't want to fight me. I'll you know, I've got a third degree black belt in who flung dung kung fu or whatever <laughs> right or you'll say i wasn't looking at you i don't have a problem you got a problem that's called posturing right yeah. i'm going to try to show them that it's costly to start a fight with me i'm going to say this is not going to go your way or at least i'm going to exact some price that this is not going to be a worthwhile endeavor for you mm. And yeah. that makes sense because evolutionary, and this is not to give too much away of, of what I was of, of what I was talking about in the podcast over there, but it makes sense because in hunter-gatherer societies, if anybody could just come and you know push me around and I'd turn around and run, um, everybody would realize that they could do that. I'd lose all my resources and no member of the opposite species would want to mate with me because I can't secure, you know, I, I won't be able to provide a secure for the offspring. So evolution has geared us that if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a bloke, you want at least to put on some, even if you're going to lose the fight from an evolution perspective, let's get out of the bar for a second and into our hunter-gatherer societies. It makes... It makes a point to put up some sort of fight, even if you're going to lose it. Yeah. What's the other alternative? The other alternative that we might do is we might say, look, I, I really don't want to fight you. I'm sorry. My bad. Let me buy you a beer. What am I doing here? I'm submitting. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm saying I recognize that you're the alpha, that you're dominant here. I don't want, I don't want inter this interaction. I'm submitting because... And again, this has some evolutionary pur purpose because I still need to stay in my social circle, let's say, okay? So there is some evolutionary strategy. So that means that when we talk about fight or flight, it's not doesn't give us the full picture. If you're faced with a, I don't know, a, a, what is the Monty Python skit? A, a tiger in Africa? Something yeah, like I that? Can't I don't remember, know. Yeah. I'm putting too much, but you know, if you're facing a lion, right, yeah. you can't really posture up to the lion. The lion doesn't care about your third degree black belt, does it, right? You probably should run. Um, and if running isn't an option, I don't know, grab the biggest rock, the stick, and you know, 
pray to you know whatever deity you believe in and and put up some sort of a fight there is nothing but fight or flight against members of a different species but when we're dealing with members of the same species, it becomes more complicated. First of all, every fight is not a fight to the death. Most of them aren't. And then we have something that's more likely. So I see the model as, as opposed to fight, flight, and freeze. I see uh, fight, flight, posture, and submit. And we're mm. going to be more likely to posture and submit towards members of the same species of us. And if we start to understand that, that's the beginning of having some control over it. I know that if I'm a young man and somebody walks up into me, that has a bit of testosterone uh, in him and somebody walks up to me in a bar, I know that my, my primal um, hormones are going to be shout, you know, are going to be shouting at me to stand up. Even though, though there's no, it makes no sense, survival. Because the best thing I can just walk out of there and I go to another bar. Like, I, I don't care. You know, so he made me look like a fool. There's nothing lost here for me because, you know, I never have to see any of these people again. I was speaking to somebody also the other, the other day, uh, Terry Tran, who is, who is a former biking enforcer. And he said, he actually called a challenge on that. He said, that's not so clear cut because if you go, he's from Texas, right? Yeah. And if you're in rural Texas, there aren't that many bars around, right? And everybody knows everybody. And if somebody comes at you and, you know, steps on your foot or spills some beer on you, if you don't make your stand, um, you know, it's much more, let's say, hunter-gather yeah. uh, men mentality over there. You got to make your stand. I mean, of course, Texans are famous for making their stands to make, yeah. to make their stand, right? So it's not... Remember the Alamo, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's not that clear cut. It's not just fight or flight. It doesn't tell the whole story. And if you're interested and if you... You're trying to deliver people skills that are going to protect them from violence. Your job doesn't finish just with the mechanics of punching, blocking, kicking, or choking somebody out. Yeah. Well, it's uh, so you've basically, so the freeze is usually like the biological mechanism is it's not doing what it's supposed to do, which is fight or flight, but seems like you're adding in the, the, the posture or submit is a very much the social complex social aspect of, of human behavior. And I think like, you know, the whole keyboard warrior. Um, so historically, and you can see it in nature still, where if I choose to fight, it's a risk because I could, I could win that fight and I could still die. You know, humans, we have our medicine now. We can, it's not as risky to actually fight nowadays for those who want to, while as in the past, it's a huge risk uh, you may have to assert your dominance physically because otherwise someone's going to come stab you in the back and you have to convince, you know, your social group that I'm not worth fighting. Or on the other end, nowadays, you can, you know, crazy beats big. If you really convince someone that you're not, they're not with the fight, that's when you're kind of activating that, oh, I don't want to get hurt kind of thing, I think. Um, it's gotten very, I think we're at a place in human evolution where the the lines are getting really blurred because our social structures and technological uh, changes is altering our behavior in a way that, you know, our biology is not necessarily sure what to do, which may explain the rise in mental health issues. Although I'm not sure if it's because of that or if we just started measuring it in the last hundred years, no one's shown me proof either way. But um, I would say that 
in the next thousand years, we're going to start to see some changes in that behavior, but I have no idea and I don't think anyone will what's going to happen. Because as we no longer need that primal uh, fight or flight as much for survival and the social thing becomes far more, far more important, it's going to be very interesting to see how we handle violence in the future, you know. Well, human beings are incredibly adaptive. That's something very unique about our species. And that's why we survive so well in, in so many different environments. And the let's say the flexibility, the plasticity of, of our brains and the tools that we have, like we're social animals. That's, I mean, that's the whole thesis, right? That our brain has become so big and so developed and it's cost us a lot to develop such a, such a big brain. I mean, it's a big... Uh, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of calories to to keep this uh, to get this brain running and to keep it running. But also, you know, human beings by far the animal that it takes the longest time until we're self-sufficient, until we're no longer reliant on our parents for survival. Like I, I have a I have a one-month-old at the moment at home, and like you know, we're incapable of looking after ourselves until we're about you know probably 10, 11, 12 years old. Like our brain isn't even fully cooked when it comes out of the oven, mm. right? When we come out, out, out of that birth, because it needs to be capable of, of so much power. Now, what takes so much power? Why, why do we need that? The argument is that we need it for complex social relations that we have among ourselves, right? Like it wouldn't do a zebra very much. Uh, this is again, stealing from, from Professor Von Hippel. Uh, it wouldn't help a zebra to have the biggest brain in the world because um, it could have maybe very interesting conversations with other zebras, but it doesn't quite have op opposing thumbs. It can't really do anything with that brain. It would just be a very big expenditure and there's no way that a zebra could eat enough grass to be able to have enough calories to get this brain going. But so why do humans need such big brains? Well, we need to work together in mm. order to survive. That's really what a species have. We're not bigger, we're not stronger, we don't have bigger teeth. There's really, really uh, pitiful as, as far as, you know, physical capabilities that we have are. So one human being on their own is nothing. You put them, you put them in the wild pretty much anywhere and they'll die. Yeah. But the moment you put in 10 humans together anywhere in the wild without any resources... It won't take very long until they become the top of the food chain and they start uh, uh, dominating the landscape. And that's because as a team, we work together, right? Um, so in order to work together, I need to not just understand my world, but I need to have a representation of how you understand the world. And I need to understand that, okay, wait, his face is showing something off. Maybe he's unhappy with something that I did, okay? Mm. What did I do? Okay, because if you're unhappy with something that I did, and a few other people are unhappy, well, you guys might just decide. The first thing is you guys might. This is quite interesting because this is true across all human societies all the way back, right? If I'm starting to act in a way that's harmful for the group, the first thing the group will do is you'll start ignoring me. You'll give mm. me a signal. That's that's warning number one. You start ignoring me. You'll start pretending that I'm not there. You won't talk to me. You won't interact with me. You'll give me, you know, mean faces and stuff. That's kind of a, a warning of setting the boundaries. Okay. Yeah. The next uh, the next step is okay. You'll start to isolate me. You won't start letting me participate uh, participate in things. You'll start excluding me 
from things. Very quickly, it isolates that everybody's going to stone me to death, right? Mm. Because I might be the strongest person in a group, but doesn't matter how strong I am, I'm no match for you know six mem six members of the group who pick up stones and start throwing at me, and that that's that's pretty much that's something that I'd say it's a powerful multiplier the stone throwing part, yeah. right? Because if you know if me and my ten you know best hunter gatherer you know hunters were out there and we wanted to hunt whatever woolly mammoth or an elephant or a tiger like the first one who jumps on the on the lion is dead the second one is also dead the third one is dead uh, maybe the fourth or the fifth will have you know something going for it maybe it's not but that doesn't really help us because to pass on our genes there's no incentive for being the first one to jump on the lion yeah. there's really no but if we can all stand back a little bit and start throwing stones or spears or whatever it is at the lion if there's enough of us, 20 people throwing stones, and the hunter-gatherers were really, really, really good at throwing stones, then you could take down almost anything. Yeah. I wonder, so you, uh, well, it just brings out, I'm just thinking, because, like, if we're biologically driven to need to work in a group to survive, nowadays, in our literal day-to-day -day life, we don't need the group per se on a day-to-day -day interaction and that could be causing that breakdown in, in social behavior right now because everyone is sort of isolated. We're surviving because of the group, but in our our personal experiences day-to-day, -day, a lot of people are sitting by themselves in front of the computer. Even though they're surviving by the group, they're not getting that day-to-day -day feedback and that could be uh, leading to uh, the shenanigans we're seeing all over the world right now with uh, behavioral breakdown. Well, well, it's not the whole story because we're, we're developed yeah. to work together well within our group. Yeah. We're also developed to fight against outside groups, mm. right? In group, we're out compete group, against yeah. re against resources. So yeah. the, all the keyboard warding, all the fighting, it's it's especially we see it now in modern politics. This uh, uh, polarization of people mm. are saying this is my group, and I'm going to toe the line of whatever my group says. Doesn't matter how crazy or how preposterous it is. And anybody who doesn't agree with us 100%, they're the enemy. And we're yeah. going to fight them 100%. We're very much geared for that as a society. To pick our group, to be loyal to our group, and to fight other societies, other groups, outside groups to the death. And yeah, yeah the internet has made, made it very easy. Like my group nowadays, it doesn't have, it used to be my community, my neighborhood. My group could be, you know, a public forum on 4chan or whatever. And, you know, the outside group can be, you know, somebody who have never had interaction or seen before. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's thrilling. It's absolutely yeah. like it's for me, that's the most interesting topic to really, you know, understand who we are and what drives our behavior. And if you can understand that, there's a very big relevancy to Krav Maga and to self-defense, because if you mm. can understand that, you can understand what your uh, the people who are going to attack you what their motivations are likely going to be, what are the things that are going to be able to deter them. And you can also understand what you're going to likely do. Forget about logic for a second, but what you've been preconditioned to do, not only from a physical instinctive perspective, but also from an emotional perspective. Yeah. No, it's, it's super exciting to hear that. I, uh, cause, you know, when I, start, I started Krav, I don't know, 2008, and uh, it's the technique, the technique, learn the technique. And then I, you know, I'm like rooting on it. Okay, this is self-defense. What does that mean? And I love history and I love psychology. So I started, you know, slowly adding in, you know, global politics and all that. And, and at first people are like, 
this is not Kramaga. And I'm like, okay, everyone likes to travel to Thailand, right? And they're like, yeah. Hey, how many of you knew there was a military coup a few years ago? And they just look at you blank. And I'm like, okay, what had happened? What would have happened if you were there during that time on your vacation? And you're not aware of the global politics in the area that you are, and you get caught up in a coup. How's that going to go for you? And a lot of people still have a hard time because they they really got it in their head. Kravnagar is punching, kicking, you know, kicking the groin, punching the throat. And then I'm trying to explain to them, like, if you don't even know what's going on in your own country, this is the story I like to use. I'm like, what happened to Jews in World War II? And everyone, you know, yeah, that you guys were killed. I'm said, well, not everyone, because if you listen, you know, I listen to this really awesome story. I always forget his name. He was one of the top uh, early, like, sort of uh, real estate investors as an investment class in the in the states. And his fa- his father uh, was either Poland or Germany. Was like, hey, something is not right here. You know, he's paying attention to the German uh, Nazi Party, etc. And he's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some exploring. And he like went off out east looking for his exits. Comes back, tells his family like the whole extended family, we gotta go. Like that, this is not good. The politics are not good. And they're all like, you're crazy. You know how a lot of them were. We're established. I don't want to move. He says, screw you, grabs his young kids, his wife or whatever, bails. They were on the last train out and they ended up being uh, one of the the, or, uh, the family of the 2,000 Jews that the Japanese ambassador got out through the Lithuanian em- embassy. And I'm like, I mean, that's an amazing story to explain. You need to understand what's going on in your country. You need to go and understand what's going on in other countries because the Jews know very well. Sometimes, even in society, you got to run. And if you have no idea what is going on because you have normalcy bias, everything is fine yesterday, everything is going to be fine today, everything will be fine tomorrow, my country can never fall apart. I'm like, have you looked at what's going on in America right now? That country is on the path to breaking up, guys. Stop with this. And then you start teaching people. And some people get it. They're like, that makes complete sense. And other people, they, they're just like, I just want to punch people. <laughs> but to me, it's all self-defense. And I know what was interesting because I was uh, watching your post during the recent conflict and you're making a lot of posts, uh, political and otherwise. And I, it's unusual for the Israeli Kramaga community right now because a lot of them have chosen not to talk about this stuff at all. <laughs> so I, well, I think it's fascinating. That's, that's, that's the thing, you know, for, for a long time, you know, at the beginning, I guess, I, you know, I'm very passionate about about my people and my country, yeah. and um, you know, and 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 it hurts when you see, the, you know, the rubbish and 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 the misinformation that's spread around. And as somebody who's there and has a platform, I'm I'm happy to share. Like I feel it's my duty to to be able to share to give my side of uh, you know of the conflict of somebody who who lives here who's experienced it. Who's, who's lived through it, whose parents and grandparents have lived through it. And there's certainly a price to be paid if you choose to be vocal on, mm. that, uh, on that side. And, and it's nothing new. Things have polarized. It's bec- the price has become greater, but there was al- always a price. And I used to say, you know, I teach Krav Maga. That's what I do. I've got my personal opinions, but they're my own. And, um, you know, and it, I don't have to, you know, I don't, the two don't necessarily need to mix. And mm. I think what really made the shift was uh, that 
I kind of said, screw it. Like, uh, I don't shove my politics down anybody's face. It's not even politics. Like a lot of the stuff that that I I describe, it's 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 showing the the, the logical the viewpoint of 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 kind of where where we're at and what's happening. But mm. I said, you know, to hell with it. If if there's some people who um, I put, I'm not right about everything, and you know, the the different viewpoints to different stories. But I believe that this viewpoint is, is an important one to be heard. And if it offends somebody if, and if they don't like it, then they're perfectly fine. I'm, I'm okay if people if people say, look, I don't like Ron's politics, so I don't want to train with him. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, it's a cost I'm willing to bear. But on the other hand, also, I don't expect I have a lot of a lot of my best friends, a lot of people who train with me. They don't they can say, look, I don't agree with you over here or, you know, mm-hmm. I don't. You're wrong, in my opinion, and that's perfectly fine. That's important. That's healthy. Um, I've I've got a lot of excellent students from uh, from Turkey, from uh, the United Arab Emirates. Um, I've trained Jordanians, Egyptians. I've I've trained Israeli Arabs. I'm happy to train anybody who wants to learn Krav Maga and wants to protect themselves and their community. Um, and Krav Maga is a defensive art, and it's a it's a defensive thing. And it's there for everybody. I couldn't care less about the color of your skin. I couldn't care less about your religion. I couldn't care less about your sexual orientation. Um, that's your business, and everybody has the right, you know, to their opinions and, and to live their life. And I, and I and I'd fight for anybody's right to be able to to you know to have the religion to, and to be the way the way they want. But yeah, yeah I, I don't mind. I, I speak my mind, and and if and if that bothers somebody, uh, let them be bothered. Yeah. So, I mean, since we're on it, because uh, a lot of people might not know what just happened. So what's in Israel? What kind of is your perspective on, on, on all that as someone who had to live through that uh, in the recent month or two? Look, I think the bottom the bottom line is that, you know, the Israeli Arab conflict is something that goes down, goes back a few hundred years. Right, and it is a complex thing. It's far more complex than could be understood through one uh, infographic or you know some you know model or in or Instagram personality that decides to put on a post. And I think that's the problem because people you know people want to simplify. People want to um, people want to fight for the right, and and that's good. But a lot of times people get trapped and get 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 taken into things that are far more simplistic. And this is this is a complex thing. Look, bottom line, if you want to talk to me about my politics, I'll say it. There are two nations here, and both of them are here. And and you can't you can't deny that there's no getting away f- from it. We can talk about history, which I'm very happy to discuss. We talk can talk about you know legal rights, we can talk about whatever you like. But at the end of the day, these are people here, the Palestinians and the Israelis, who are living, breathing, and they have no other place to go. So there's no alternative besides learning how to live together with one another in peace. It will happen. The sooner, the less suffering there's going to be. But it it will happen because there is no other alternative. And that's, I think, that people, you know, there's, there's... you know, we can argue until tomorrow, and I, I, and obviously, you know, as 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 a Jewish person, um, who's you know who, who has you know a long, long connection of thousands of years to the, to this land, I you know I, I can lay out very clearly why 
you know, we belong here, but that, that doesn't take away from any other's buddy's right also to belong here. And let's say if I was, let's say, let's say I could give you the, be, you know, the most, the best argument of why, you know, only Jews should be here and, and Arabs or Muslims have no right to be here and they shouldn't be here. Let, let's say that was the case, which it's not, but let's say it was. How does that help? How does that get us one one step closer to the, the solution? Let's say I was able to prove that historically Palestinians had no right to be here. Okay, so what? You know, they were, you know, they were born here. This is their place. What are you going to do with it? Same thing here. You know, I was born here. My mother was born here. You know, I, I, this is this is this is my this is my country. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. So I think that's the thing. People focus on, um, I think that the politics, I don't want to say that they're irrelevant. I think the historical thing, it's important, but none of that gets us any closer to a solution. Yeah. We need to find how to, how to live together. Um, there is no other alternative. But I'll also say that until that day comes, as long as there are people out there that want to kill me and my family, I don't really care. If you know if if they think that they're justified or what, like, I'm going to stand firm and I'm going to protect my country, um, my family, and the people that I love, and I'm going to do that fiercely, just as anybody else would. Yeah. Um, so that's that's it. You know, when people are shooting rockets at at my family, I'm going to do everything I can to to, to defend so. And it, that that doesn't mean that you know I want or I'm happy to see casualties on the other side. I don't want to see anybody die. Yeah. I I don't I don't even you know. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I mean, mean makes but, sense. But, but that's I don't see how any other position could be could be rational. Yeah. There's no other choice. We got to learn to live together. And and any death is on either side is is a tragedy. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like also, I'll tell. Well, it's not funny. It's not a funny topic. But uh, what I saw on my Facebook from all my Israeli friends was like, I swear to God, if I have to go do this again, I'm going to be so pissed. And, like, and I was telling people, uh, like, you know, my Israeli friends do not want to go to another war. They're not interested in it. And I was like, did you know that most Israelis are not interested in it? Like they don't want to, but they will. And a lot of people, they, like, they just don't know. Because they sit and they see the memes with the, the crappy information. I see people, I saw a rise in anti-Semitic memes. Even people that I respect. It's like, what are you, what are you posting? Uh, you know, I love the history and I find a lot of people don't, first of all, don't know the history. So there's a, a mistaken starting point. But I say, like, it doesn't really matter. Like the Balfour Declaration, all that. Who cares? For People forget that for so much of human history, whoever controlled the land is whoever won the war. And I'm like, listen, you don't have to like it. We won the war. And then guess what? We built a very strong nation where Arabs and Palestinians and Druzies and Christians can all live. Deal with it. What are you going to do moving Look, forward? You know, people, people, people don't know. People don't. I mean, most people don't even know their own history, the history yeah. of their country, the history of their nations. But all of a sudden, everybody's an expert in uh, in uh, in Middle East uh, politics and history, which is one of the most complex, not one of the most, it's probably the most complex region and uh, in, in the world. So yeah. I, 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 I certainly don't don't. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I don't get it. Yeah. A misinformation does not. 
not help. It's like, um, and it, you know, a lot of people, I think, choose not to talk about this stuff because you are going to get into heated debates. I had a situation a few years ago um, during the Syrian conflict with all the refugees. Well, I, it's no no shock I despise our current prime minister. But what he did, like an asshole, is he was playing a PR thing where he's like, oh, look at the refugees, look at the refugees, let's bring in the refugees. Except what they were actually doing was sending people over to the camps, picking and choosing who they wanted to come to the country, which is something about Canadian immigration people, Canadians don't even know. They're very strict here. It's not as bad as Australia, but they're very strict. And uh, I was just explaining, like, I don't think you understand that our government isn't just saying, come refugees. They're not actually taking the most destitute people. They are taking, the, they're picking and choosing who they want, probably to do with political stuff. Because, you know, if you bring the refugees that are educated, they'll vote for you. It's a tactic. Uh, and people are just like, yeah, you are anti-Islamophobic. I'm like, that's not what I said. I'm just saying, can you please understand what your government is actually doing and not what you think they're doing? And I had so many people down my throat. And you, you can see why people don't want to talk about it. I just want to educate people. And a lot of people can't be bothered. They just like put their head down because the social pressure of, hey, you guys, you might not have the right picture here. Is It's a lot for some people. And then back to the, our nervous system. You know, most people only have the capacity for their immediate family and maybe their students. And they're like, I, I can't deal with it. But I, I just think it's so important because so many people just, they don't know. And I, I'm very much in informing people. Uh, I, I have stopped on the Israel thing, doing it on the internet and doing, hey, let's have a conversation in person. Because usually the messaging uh, just explodes into a bunch of nonsense. So I'll be like, hey, if you want to talk about this, you, let's go get coffee and, and I can explain what I know and let's have a conversation. I found, though, that a lot of people don't want to do that. You take away the internet and you say, listen, let's have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Let's, I'll buy you coffee. Let's discuss this. And they'll be like, ah, yeah, let's do it next week here. And then you'll get, hey, uh, something came up. I and then they don't want to, when they t you take away that internet, you, you, they don't want to be confronted with the reality that they probably think I know a lot that they don't and we can, I'm going to correct them. And they don't want to do that. They'd rather know Israel's bad, the Jews are bad, they're taking over the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All that nonsense. It's, uh, it's definitely an uphill battle and one that I'm not sure is, uh, it's, it's, it's a challenge right now, especially the way everything is going crazy right <laughs> Good to know Krav Maga at this time, though, I think. <laughs> now, um, teaching civilians, let's go back to the get out of that topic. It's, a, it's quite dense. I have, like, the way I've developed my program is the beginner stuff is, like, I just need you to get your head around it, and I'm going to teach you the fundamentals. You know, punching, kicking, moving, basic self-defense. Then sort of mid-levels, I start teaching... Um, Okay, now I can actually teach you some wrestling and, and boxing because now that you have the framework of self-defense, you're not going to think we're just fighting right away. And then I build up even civilians like, okay, now I'm going to teach you how to arrest people. How I'm going to teach you how to use firearms. Because even though in Canada you're not legally allowed to have guns for self-defense, legally speaking, that's not to say if a, someone comes with a gun, I get it away and their friend comes with a gun, I need to know what to do with it. So I consider it all self-defense. So how do you integrate sort of that military police stuff that is often self-defense, like Texas, you would certainly need it, uh, into your civilian program for people with no firearms experience, for example? Well, 
look, as a Krav Maga instructor, you need to be able to really adapt the training for the people to be relevant for whoever it is you're training. Now, there might be different needs or requirements. If, if it's, if it's uh, a woman's self-defense class, let's say, or if, if you're training soldiers, or if you're training, you know, civilians that are going to come for, you know, a couple of times a week for training, or whether it's just a, you know, once-off workshop, you need to be able to kind of put together and structure things. What you're talking about is, I believe, like the lo a long-term long Yeah, long-term. For somebody who's coming in, and is going to maybe train with you for, for a few years, Maybe even maybe even a bit more than that. Um, my, I guess my starting point. If you when you come to learn from me, the very first things you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to stand. You can learn how to move. You can learn the basic tools that we're going to be using later on. So like st standing, punches, kicking, elbows, knees, all the basics. We also learn um, some of the most common you know releases from grabs and chokes, the things that are part and parcel for Krav Maga, but. A lot of that is, it's not just attack itself. For example, if you're learning how to defend when somebody grabs you with a choke with two hands from the front, and you're learning how to clear their hands from your throat and how to counter strike, what you're really learning to do is go from a defensive position of when you were attacked into going from defense into offensive very quickly in order to be able to push your, your attacker away from you. But there's also another element, because this is not just in a vacuum. They've got their hands on you. This offers a very good platform to teach people without a lot of experience on how to maneuver and how to use when, when the hands are in play, right? You've got your hands in front of on my throat, and I need to be able to not just release your hands, but I need to start hitting and moving and getting around you while you know your hands are on me or moving around. So at the very basic levels, I learned the skills of, of how to deal with somebody grabbing me or somebody throwing a punch and how to how to go on to the offense from there mm. it's also very important that it doesn't stop there because and i think this is something that a lot of people miss in krav maga a lot of instructors miss in krav maga the fight can turn very quickly often people train instructors will teach what uh, they'd like to see themselves be doing mm. what i mean by that is Okay, you grab me by the throat. I'm going to clear your hands. I'm going to throw an uppercut. I'm going to throw a couple of straight punches, knees, elbows, until you fall on the ground. I'm going to throw a couple of hammer strikes, and boom, I won the fight. Okay, which is nice. But in reality, if I choose that strategy, and let's say, you know, going back to I'm not a big guy, or let's say I'm a girl, and I've got somebody much bigger than me grabbing, me. So they grabbed me by the throat. I was able to clear the hands. I kicked them in the balls. Maybe I shocked them. Probably I shocked them because they weren't expecting that. If they were expecting a fight, they wouldn't have grabbed me by the throat. They would have maybe thrown a punch. So I have, for one second, I have the advantage of, of surprise, right? I kicked them in the balls. Let's say I was able to punch them in the face. Great. They're stunned. Right? But if they're a big guy, there's no reason to expect that that's going to take them down, especially if I'm not very big. Or let's say I'm not a Krav Maga black belt. Let's say I'm only a yellow belt. Maybe I've only been training for a few months because, you know, also yellow belts need to be able to protect themselves. So very quickly, if I keep on this mindset of the black belt, big, tough guy instructor who can defeat anybody, and I'm going to follow up my punches with elbows, with knees, well, surprise is no longer with me. Yeah. And assuming that my the person who attacked me is still standing, well, now they enter the fight. And that's a fight I may not be able to win. Yeah. So if 
I come with the humility of understanding that I may not be able to win every fight. In yeah. fact, a lot of the fights, a lot of the confrontations that I'm going to pound myself in, I probably won't be able to fight. So what I can hope to do is get off a few good strikes in order to push the attacker off of me so that I can turn around and run or maybe pull out a firearm if, if I'm armed or maybe grab an object or something else that will able, able, enable me to survive that confrontation. Right? So that's really where we start off with. And that's something that I found lacking almost anywhere you train boxing, you learn to, you know, knock out your opponent or to win off, off points. In Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you're learning how to submit somebody, right? And in karate, it's also, you know, all these martial arts, they're geared for one-on-one -on -one fighting with opponents who are more or less the same size and the same skill set. And therefore, I train to win because, you know, that's a reasonable thing to be asked. But in Krav Maga, for a long time when I was a kid training growing up and later, and also when I was a junior instructor teaching, I was teaching people to win fights, mm. right? Somebody grabs you by the throat, this is how you win the fight. Somebody pulls a knife on you, this is how you win the fight. You get them on the ground or you disarm them or whatever, you know? Somebody puts you in a headlock, this is how you put them on the ground so that they can't fight anymore. Yeah. But that's wrong for self-defense because you may, there may not be a scenario in which you can win the fight. So I'm not saying it's enough to, okay, I'm going to throw a kick to the balls and run away. I may have to do a lot more danger than that. But I'm always gearing to disengage. And to me, that's the purpose of Krav Maga. The purpose of Krav Maga, and this is, I ask always my students to the first part, they're going to say, well, it's to survive. I say, well, you know, at some point or other, you're going to die. Hopefully it's in your bed when you're old and gray and you've got all your grandparents looking for you. But, you know, survival, that's not an end goal. In the fight, it's disengaging. And if I'm training to win the fight, I may just end up making things worse. I may uh, end up having a strategy that's going to kill me. Because if I say, okay, well, you know, I'm really good at pulling guard or putting somebody in an armbar or something like that, and that's my go-to. Or I might be really good at getting somebody in a clinch, a Muay Thai clinch, and taking them apart with, the, with my knees. And I'm geared to win the fight. But, you know, I may not be able to win the fight. Maybe, you know, doesn't matter how good you are in jujitsu. And again, the end goal is not just that only black belts will be able to be to defend themselves, but also yellow belts and blue belts and, and purple belts and whatnot. It may not be a reasonable ask, ask just by the use of techniques for somebody who's of a smaller stature to be able to defeat somebody who's bigger than them. Or you know, somebody to be able to defeat three or four opponents. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, I always say, like, I'll teach and I'll be like, hey, what I'm showing you right now is what I call textbook. This is, everything is perfect. And then I'm like, guess what? It's never going to be perfect. You want to train as good as you can in the gym so that you inevitably, as it gets worse and worse and worse on the street, that you're at a higher level than you would otherwise because obviously there's a certain complete fail point in your skill set versus somebody else uh, and some people take longer than others to realize i'm gonna have to fill in the blanks because you know the what if what if this and i'm like you need to train more just come come for six months and then if you still ask want to answer that question then i'll ask it but i'm sure you're gonna figure it out eventually and then you get you know the smaller students it's like well how, how can i beat them i'm like you can't you can only, as you said, stun them and then get your exit. And I don't know what it's like in Israel, but here, you know, the whole 
positivity culture and believe in yourself and eh, all that it drives me nuts because it's not realistic sometimes and i'm like it's not it's not just the positivity culture right you gotta remember who's okay so who's teaching krav maga who's teaching boxing who's teaching jujitsu right you know we're guys and girls you know we love combat right it's not by coincidence that we chose to make you know we chose to dedicate our lives to become very proficient in the use of violence Right. So we're not people who like to lose fights or who even, you know, who want to admit that there are battles that we'll never be able to win. Doesn't matter how much training we have. That's something that's a very, very hard pill to swallow. So then we approach our training and going, well, you know, either we delude ourselves and our students and going, well, if, if, if they just train hard enough or if, you know, they do it long enough or if they have the right technique, then they'll be able to beat their opponent. And that's, yeah. I mean, martial arts and combat sports as a general, dedicated, dedicated, and we saw this in the UFC, right? They all ask one question. The question is, who would win in a fight, right? Mm. Who would win in a fight? Boxing versus wrestling, right? Jiu-jitsu versus Thai boxing, right? Who would win in a fight? Or, you know, uh, Mexican vo- boxing versus Cuban boxing. Mm. Or, you know, Canelo versus uh, 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 Gennady Glovkin. Whatever, yeah. right? And then, because that's what they ask, that's the type of answers that they get, mm. right? In Krav Maga, we shouldn't be asking who would win in a fight. That's of no use to us because we don't fight. We deal with assault. Mm. Krav Maga, we ask, what if? And that's why you get it a lot in, in training, right? Krav Maga instructors get what if, what if, what if, what if. Sometimes it drives us crazy. Yeah. And, and you, got, you, got, you got to sometimes put a boundary because it's like, what if somebody came at me with a machete? It's like, that's nice, but I'm trying to teach you, um, you know, rear naked choke today. We'll get the machete another time. Okay? <laughs> but, but the reason we get that, like nobody asks a boxer, you know, what do you do if somebody comes at you with a machete? Because it's irrelevant. That's not boxing. Mm. But in, in Krav Maga, that's something we deal with. And somebody asks who would win in a fight. Well, um, I say, well, the person who surprised the other guy with a brick to the head from yeah. behind, they'll win yeah. the fight every time, right? Yeah. So, okay, so now we don't say who would win the fight. We say, okay, what if somebody approached me like that? So we say, okay, let's start with situational awareness, hmm. okay? And then we say, okay, what if somebody much bigger than me approached me? We're like, okay, well, let's have a think about that, right? What if they grabbed me like this? Okay, now... Yes, and that's what Krav Maga does very effectively. It's it shouldn't be five hundred different techniques for five hundred different problems because the, the problems are endless, right? The variations in which one can get attacked are never ending. Yeah. But that's something that we always get hit with. What if this happened? What if that happened? And then I need to, as instructor, I say, is this a reasonable scenario? Yeah. Well, if it is. I better, I sure as hell better have an answer to that, right? I don't get to say, well, we don't do that, okay? Hmm. And yeah, that's, no, that's, it... that's something very unique about Krav Maga, and it's it's a problem because as instructors, very often we're in the mindset of who would win, who would hmm. win in a fight, right? What's a better martial art? It, it it really depends, and it's not a question that has any use of any use for me in uh, in Krav Maga. Yeah. Well, even like that, like there's, I do jujitsu too. Like I love it. I train it a lot more than I do Krav right now. Um, and, uh, 
there are some days I can beat this person and some days they can beat me. And, and, and self-defense is, is so much of like, are you tired today? Did you well, eat that, well today? No Did you that, sleep right, well today? You know? That's no good for me as a Krav Maga. Like as somebody who's preparing people to face life and death violence, um, someday, um, you know, I can beat them. Someday they beat me. That's that's no good for me. 50-50 is not yeah. is not acceptable. Um, is not acceptable uh, criteria for mm. walking into it. I need something that you know, sure as hell, is going to get me out of that scenario. And and then the mechanics of it are really not like. They're important. You need to know how to block against a knife. You need to know, but it exists in a bigger picture. And in Krav Maga, something that we have very useful is the scenarios, right? In Krav Maga, we build scenarios because it's not enough. Okay, great. You can, it's, I guess it would be equivalent. Great. You can punch the punching bag. You're really good at punching the punching bag. You've got an awesome punch. Well, guess what? First time you step into a ring against an opponent in boxing who's trying to punch you back, um, you're not that good at punching anymore. Like everything goes out the window, everything you thought you knew. Okay. Yeah. I draw the same equivalency of it. Okay, good. You can defend against a knife or, you know, you can defend a takedown or avoid taking, getting taken down from the ground. Okay. But can you do it against somebody who's relatively stronger than you on asphalt? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Can you defend against a knife against somebody who's already stabbed you a couple of times from behind because you didn't see them. And now as you turn around, you need to fight survival. Can you do that? Well, I'm going to structure my training that you test yourself on that. So that the first time you have to answer that question out on the street, God forbid, it's not the first time you're confronted with that situation. Yeah. And even if I can't build the exact scenario for you, I can build enough scenarios that you've so, you're so good at adapting your skill set and the tools of the trade that we use into different environments that you can do it quickly on the fly, instinctively. Instinctive. Yeah, I can't say it either. Oh, <laughs> instinctively, instinctively, yeah, yeah, yeah. that you can do it instinctively and and survive that confrontation. Yeah. Well, I think what I was getting at is that you know people come in and they're like, "I'm always going to beat them," and I'm like, "You're not always going to be in the ideal situation, right?" As I was, uh, you could be tired, you could be, uh, and if you're playing that fight game, you're not going to win, right? That's kind of what I was saying. Because you know, guys that I can beat sometimes and they can beat me sometimes. Some of them I'm. I'm fairly, fairly confident in the street I'm going to win every time because my willingness to be violent is more than them. But then there's other guys I train with. I'm like, even though they don't do Krav Maga, I'm like, no, no, I know his willingness to do violence is very high. And these, these are the aspects a lot of students don't always think about. Like for biting, for example, I don't necessarily... I'll remind students of teaching uh, that they can bite, but I don't necessarily like emphasize it because I've seen... A lot of people are not going to bite. And I've had people tell me, yeah, I bit someone in real life. And as soon as I tasted the fl flesh, I let go. And I'm like, well, then it's not a useful tool for you, right? It's that willingness to, because if you bite me, I'm going to knock your teeth out, right? I'm going to treat it, you know, you bit me, I'm going to shove my forearm right in your face and you're going to lose teeth. And so regardless of your skill set or your size, right, it's can you get them to realize, are you willing to fight for yourself in that moment? Some people can do it instinctually, usually because they had a messed up childhood or they've been trained but heavily. It's, you know? it's, also, it's also the wrong mindset. Again, in terms of, I almost, I don't deal with face-to-face, um, one-on-one conflict. Like the assumption is that if I'm ever having to use 
my skills or any of my students, it's not going to be against somebody their size. That, that won't happen. It won't mm. be in a situation where they've kind of seen it gearing up and they're ready to go. Like, that's not going to happen. They're going to be assaulted from behind. They may be with their kids. Maybe somebody will pull out a knife and try, and try to stab them. Uh, maybe it's going to be somebody bigger than them. So this whole context of, you know, uh, of envisioning what the fight goes down, like we hyper-focus, especially guys, right? Especially mm. men and especially, um, you know, men who have dedicated their lives to martial arts. We're very much geared. It's funny. It's almost like, um, right? We're evolutionary geared to say, you know, if I had to take this on and, you know, this guy would fight, who would who would reign victorious? Um, and, and a lot of her thinking goes to that. Can I take this guy? Yeah. But and we slip into me too. We slip into that all the time. And we need to train ourselves to push that aside and go, can I train this guy? That's irrelevant because it's it's not the guy that I'm up against, it's the scenario, it's the situation. Okay. Because mm. even that guy, it's not like you know, we're gonna go at it and it's going to be even. I'm going to be at a disadvantage. From you know, even from the mo most basic thing of Let's say somebody ambushed you, right? And they wanted to, they, they attacked you, right? Because if I discount the, the, it's called technically status-seeking aggression, right? Mm. Status-seeking aggression is, you know, is the bro fight, right? Two guys yeah. going at it to, that's status-seeking aggression. I, I don't do that. If somebody is mm. in my face and says, come on, you want to go? Bye. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. I'm not, I'm not interested. Like, it's very hard, especially somebody who's dedicated their life to violence, it's very hard to provoke me to do something that I don't want to do. I mean, if somebody pushes me and is aggressive in my face, like, I get, I voluntarily get punched in the face on a regular basis in training. Like, I, 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 I literally, I enjoy getting punched. I've been doing it for so, so long in, in sparring and stuff. I like punching people. Um, I like getting punched. I like punching people just a little bit better than I like getting punched myself. Uh, but uh, that was a joke, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but like, I don't skip. I don't skip a beat that much from the threat of violence. Mm. Okay. So to get me to react would have to. The situation would have to be quite extreme. Yeah. But, I'm like, but as a craft instructor, I'm not just concerned about myself. I'm concerned about other people too. But the people that I train, we don't do that. Okay, that doesn't exist. The the you know two guys duking it out. Sorry, uh, that's you know, I don't talk about those scenarios. They don't interest me. You shouldn't be fighting in those those scenarios. And also, that's not a life or death situation. Mm. I'm more interested yeah. about yeah about all these things about assault, about the thing that you don't expect or the, the, the situation that you couldn't get out of. And there, yeah. you know, the, the, the traditional answers of, you know, outboxing them or out grappling them, like, it's not, it's not really about that. Yeah. No, that's good. Like, cause one of the, I have been trying to figure out how, what's the easiest way to explain to people, you're not fighting, you're doing self-defense, right? Cause you know, I find uh, sometimes I'll get a really athletic student who, uh, has done some kind of martial arts, you know, MMA or, or uh, boxing. And they, they very rarely stay because they're like, oh, I can fight. And getting people to understand that difference, like you're not trying to fight for, I'm not teaching you to fight. I'm teaching you self-defense. And a lot of people really struggle. 
I think well, that, you have... that's that's one thing that I found quite a couple of years ago. I stopped using the word fight to describe mm. what we do in Krav Maga. We don't fight, right? Mm. We deal with assault, yeah. and that once you once you understand that, that really makes the difference, right? Um, I love the who would win in a street fight, right? Yeah. The, the mere concept of a street fight is ridiculous if you really understand. Like, what the hell is a street fight, right? It really, it's a competition. It's just it's a boxing match that happens out on the street or an MMA match over there, right? It's the same thing, right? I pull into your car space, right? You you come out of there, you go, that's my fucking car space. I go, no, it's mine. And you say you want to go. You move yeah. your car out. I say, I'm not moving. Your car. There's this whole ritual, right? Yeah. Then you push me. I push you. You say, you get your hands off of me. I swipe your hands off and then we're at it, right? And everybody gets the cameras out. And there's this whole ritual. This is, it's a competition. It's a competition. And how do we know it's a competition? Because everybody wants to see it, right? Everybody, the schoolyard fight, yeah. everybody comes, everybody watches it. There's useful information to be gained here because there's a fight here for social, for the social hierarchy, right? And mm. at the minimum, I want to know who's going to reign victorious because from a hunter-gatherer societies, it's important for me to know the hierarchies of the group and who's above who. And also, it, 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 it tells me, okay, maybe I'm going to be next. Maybe somebody's going to choose a fight. So it, it has here useful information, right? Mm. And this is a competition. Make no mistake about it. It's not a fight to the death. Sometimes it results in death, right? But it's not a fight to the death. Okay, how do I know that there are rules and there are rules that make no mistake? Because the moment one person knocks the other one on the ground and let's say now he's starting to stomp his head into the pavement with his boot and he's killing them, everybody throws away their phone. They start running around in panic and people call the police or, mm. you know, the moment one pulls out a knife, like people aren't filming with their phones anymore. Something has been, the rules have been broken. This mm. isn't a fight anymore. It turned into something very different. Yeah. And that's where Krav Maga comes in, right? We deal with assault. We don't deal like the stuff that we deal with. You'll see it on CCTV footage. You won't see it almost on mobile phones. Because when the stuff that we deal with happens, people are running for their lives, right? They're not uh, getting out their, their phones and filming it for YouTube or Worldstar or, or whatever it is. And yeah. so that, that's to me the difference. That really when I realized Krav Maga is not fighting. It's assault. It's how to deal with assault. And you know what the beauty of it is? Most legal systems don't recognize fighting right there's yeah. no such thing as i know in in canada you guys on the commonwealth uh, system uh, legal most system of canada yeah. yeah yeah same thing ah oh, sorry yeah <laughs> quebec likes to do its own quebec. thing <laughs> okay. okay okay but the same thing i'm familiar with in israel yeah there's no such thing as recognize fighting right there's assault you assaulted me and i assaulted you back both of us broke the law nobody cares about who started it right? Both of us are engaged in something that's considered illegal. So mm. even if you started it, but I punched you back and now I'm fighting with it, let's say, and I couldn't present that I tried to do everything to escape and I tried to run away and I had no choice but defending myself. But if I, you know, you pushed me and I pushed you back, that's enough. That's yeah. enough because I had an option to leave. I chose not to. This is, it's not a fight. Don't make any mistake about it. Legally, this is assault. I assaulted you. You assaulted me. But it doesn't matter. If you die, I assaulted you and you died. Not self-defense. I'm going to prison. No yeah. question about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I think we have something called a thin skull provision. So like say you push me, I push you hard and I'm twice your size and they fall and hit their head. They will make the argument that you used excessive force if they died. Right. Because generally it's 
to to stop the threat, to escape. We need to de-escalate uh, as the rule. You can use lethal force in Canada, but it's you might as well flip a coin because whether you go to I mean, jail or not. <laughs> well, I mean, what is lethal? What is lethal force, right? Um, yeah. I've heard Krupp and instructors going, "Well, I don't teach to strike to the throat because that's lethal, and we don't do that to civilians." Excuse me, I'm yeah. sorry, but a punch is lethal. I I know. Okay, one of the instructors who I've worked with, he had a student, uh, not a very good student, a bit of a, I, I actually didn't know the guy personally. He punched somebody. That mm. guy fell, knocked his head on the pavement, mm. died. Yeah. Okay, so I'm sorry, but a punch in the face is lethal. That person ended up in prison mm-hmm. and, and he belonged there. Yeah. Because, you know, if you get involved in a fight and you throw a punch, you're throwing something lethal. That could very much end up in, you know, causing somebody's death. And if you didn't have a very, very good reason why you had to do that in order to protect yourself or to protect your loved ones. So, you know, anything is lethal. You put somebody in a chokehold, you hold on too long, they die. They were a bit bigger than you. You ended up following with the falling with them in a rear naked choke. And you ended up, you know, severing their spine or something like that. So I'm sorry, but conflict is lethal. Violence is lethal. And that's okay if you understand that it's used not in the context of fighting, but in the context of dealing with assault. Mm. Okay? Sport fighting has rules. The rules are all there to protect the fighters. Right? Every single one of the rules almost. If you look at the UFC, right? The rules over there, pull them out. They're things to avoid injury, injuring one another, right? Because they don't want to see their, their fighters injured, justifiably mm. so. They've got to be able to, 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 to compete in a lot of, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of fights. Yeah. So that, that's kind of our starting point in Krav Maga. You want to, you want to know what's effective in injuring the human body? Um, pull out the pull out the rules of the UFC, and uh, that's a good starting point. That, by the way, is taken from Tim Larkin, who I also had on the. That was actually the first podcast I ever I ever did at Tim Larkin on, and he talks about injuring. That's yeah. uh, that's his go-to. He says when you're doing self-defense, your number one goal should be to injure the person in front of you, not from a moral perspective. The understanding is that you're you know you're doing the you're doing it because you have no other choice. Hmm. But if what you're doing Whatever strike you're doing, whatever you're doing, is not geared for immediate injury, then it's probably not going to end the fight. Then forget about it. For yeah. example, I don't do so much low kicks, right? Now, low kicks hurt. They hurt a lot, especially mm. if you're good at them, if you know how to throw a low kick. I'm pretty good with a low kick. I spent, I spent my time in Thailand um, training in the training camps over there, which was a lot of fun. Um, I'd never throw a low kick uh, in a self-defense scenario because... I can't guarantee that's going to end the fight right there and there. Yeah. That's not necessarily going to injure. It's going to hurt a lot. And uh, maybe with one kick, if I was lucky, and landed on the right place and stuff, I can really put somebody in the fight. But that's not guaranteed. I'm training to fight against somebody who's bigger than me. And over there, it might take a good three or four ones until you really start hurting. And I certainly don't have the time for that. Yeah. Well, no, it's, I'm, I agree with you. And I see sometimes when I'm watching certain organizations' videos, they're throwing far too many kicks to the head or, you know, roundhouse kicks to the head. I don't, don't see how that's self, like I'll teach, uh, low, I don't teach high roundhouse, I teach low, but I'm teaching it, one, to know how to use your body and, and the, the get good, but also, hey, it's a setup to do something else. You're not going to be using it as a method. Like, sure, if a guy's never been kicked in the leg and you kick him really hard, the fight's 
defense or whatever is probably over, but you cannot maybe, rely on it. Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe they're on ice, right? Yeah. Maybe they're on ice and they yeah. can't feel anything. Yeah. Or maybe just their adrenaline is kicking in and they're yeah. fi fighting to survive too. Um, but again, you see how very quickly we we gone back. Yeah. You can't avoid it. We've gone back to fighting, haven't we? And yeah. and me too. Like you almost can't help it. But as a Krav instructor and somebody's trained, you got to keep on putting yourself and remind yourself this isn't the fight. This isn't two guys going at it, throwing at each other low kicks to see who's gonna who's gonna win the fight. Yeah. It's really yeah. not. I can't see. Okay, I can't see myself throwing a low kick against a terrorist coming at me with a knife. I yeah. can't see. I can't see. Uh, you know. A 19-year-old college student throwing low kicks against somebody who's trying to sexually assault her in a parking lot, right? Yeah. So forget about low kicks. Like, not forget about them, but they're not that high up in the skills that I need to be giving to people right now. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes complete sense. Now, we were talking about sort of lethal force. Like, so let's take knife stuff, for example. You know, you give someone a knife, they always start, ah, I'm going to knife fight. And I'm like, we're not, <laughs> we're looking at, as you said, an assault situation. But then I often have to explain, like, if you watch Filipino martial arts, which are great, um, the way they, I always say the way they compete and the way they train are completely different things. And then I've, been well i don't know if it's fortunate i've bumped into some people who have been in you know quote knife fight to the death uh whether it was in a war scenario like vietnam or wherever and you ask them you know they're often like i don't really remember but my knife was in his throat and when you actually that life or death situation it really but, changes what you're doing as compared sorry, to that fight I'm going to cut you off again, and yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to hold you again and say again, you said speaking to people who were in knife fights. Now, I know exactly what you mean by that, okay? Yeah. You know, th there are soldiers in prison, by the way. Um, it's something quite common that, that gangs will, will prove, you know, who's the better man. They don't, they don't just, you know, punch each other. They'll, they'll actively set a time to meet one another and to knife fight each other there's certainly a part of that knife culture or you know in the army in the army where you might be in front of an enemy soldier and it's a knife fight okay mm. we can be excused in saying that right um let me put another scenario right um let's say let's say you're a civilian right and you're waiting for a bus stop and all of a sudden somebody ne next to you starts a terrorist next to you pulls out a knife and starts stabbing people. There's no way you'd mistake that and call it a fight, right? Mm, yeah, That's correct. not a fight. That's an act yeah. of terrorism. That's an attack. It's not a fight, right? Two guys going at it in prison with knives, that is a fight, right? So again, we don't deal with, you know, even two soldiers, you know, meeting in a trench, grappling each other, uh, you know, and one of them has a knife. Again, that, that's kind of borderline, but also goes into fight. Mm. What I'm talking about is assault, right? Even a soldier, right? A soldier is on their checkpoint or in their guard post or whatever, and all of a sudden they didn't see actually a situation. I had uh, um, one of the commanders uh, in, in, in a unit that, that I was working with, um, they, had, um, they had an alert that somebody breached the per perimeter of, 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 a, um, of a residential area near, nearby. It was, it, was, uh, um, it was in the West Bank. And they came, they did patrols and stuff, they were going around, they didn't see anybody, and um, they had a lot of forces going out there for quite a while, that's it, they, they, they figured it was a false alarm, they closed, everybody started going, there were less, less uh, presence of 
of uh, presence in the field. And then out of nowhere, the guy who's been hiding in a bush came, opened the door of the commander and put the knife into his stomach and started, started stabbing. The commander jumped on him, grabbed him. They fell down together to the ground. Um, I, I, I don't know quite the full because it, was, it wasn't filmed. It was like there was no CCTV. Hmm. It was quite blurred. They ended up shooting, shooting the, um, the terrorist with, with the 556 and an M4. It, it basically it hit him in the forehead. And it went around the four. He didn't die. All it did was it kind of it it it. You know, it's one of those freak things yeah. that uh, kind of went around his skull, like bounced off his skull, and kind of went around, gave him a mohawk. He mm. survived. He was fine. Um, but again, that's not a fight, right? Nobody can mm. call. They weren't. It wasn't a fight. This was an attack. This was an assault. This is this is where Krav Maga. This is where Krav Maga lives. Yeah. So I think. I would say then that the word fight is a trigger word for you and that pot potentially what you're looking to do is remove it from sort of the vernacular um, because it is a loaded word when you say fight. Like I'm saying it out of, out of uh, it's the colloquial way to say the things I'm trying to convey. So potentially what you, you, you would like to see is we just stop using the term fight with regards to any self-defense. Because then potentially people get confused about what they're doing. Am I correct to sort of say it like that? In my mind, a fight is, um, you know, too maybe willing, maybe not so willing participants, you know, engaged on the battlefield, wherever that battlefield can be a park, car park or whatever, you know, on equal terms or equal grounds, like they know it's on, they yeah. know what they're set up to be. And it's not that that doesn't like, you know, that's really not the realm of of self-defense, mm. right? Um, it can be both ways. It can be either I'm caught by surprise or maybe also I'm a first responder. Maybe I hear, hear yelling and I turn around and I see some woman getting stabbed to death mm. and I might choose to jump in. And like in the London Bridge attacks, by the way, mm. that were, were a couple of years ago with, with three terrorists with knives, and I might choose to jump in and pull the attacker off of them and now, you know, engage. But again, the mindset is not like, I'm not going to pull them off of them. They recognize me. I recognize them. And off we go. Like, I'm yeah. going to run to fight, pick up a brick on my way there and smash them in the head. So there is no fight, right? Mm. Yeah. Or, you know, I might grab them and start attacking. Them. I'm going to assault them. I'm not going like, let's be very clear. So we don't get sound bites that are, yeah. that are out of context. I'm talking about very specific about a situation where you have to save somebody's life that if you don't intervene now, they're going to get killed. Yeah. I'm not going in there fighting. I'm going there assaulting with everything I've got so the fight does not develop, yeah. right? And, yeah. and look, I, I get you. I don't know if it's, if, it's, if it's a trigger word so much. I just think that it's something that we have to be very careful because naturally we pull in there. I do too. You do, we all naturally kind of go into fight and we set up the fight like we want it, right? That it's a battle of uh, battle of skills. But yeah. that, that can go very dangerous things. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm prying a little bit, but I 100% I agree. Like, I'll be like, if you do a technique, you've disengaged and now you're both standing there with their hands up. I'm like, you're fighting. You should be running, right? Mm. So I, I am on the same page as you. I'm just kind of... Uh, playing a little and, and trying to get your idea out of there. Um, now, because I know you have to go soon. One thing I did want to to talk about, because it's sort of a debatable topic in the Krav Maga world, uh, is the matter of ranking. 
Uh, you mentioned belts. I use belts because for a long term program, I think they're absolutely necessary for the uh, human psyche. Uh, now, like I was talking to Ron Rotem the other week, and he was saying he loves the patches because it's the Israeli Israeli culture. And I'm, I, my stance is nobody knows what patches are in North America. It's just confusing. I'm not using them. But a lot of the Israelis are like, I want to use the patches. Uh, and then there are the groups of people who say, there's no ranks on the street. Forget it. Where's your thoughts on that? Right, so Ron Rotem is actually a very good friend of mine. Yeah. And we've had discussion so many times. And... Um, we're on opposite sides of this, but I don't think so. I think I've won him over recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I've, I've come. So as a kid, we were always training in belts. Krav originally was belts. You mm. look at Imi. Imi had a belt. Um, you know, his students had belts. That was the traditional ranking. Um, at some point, and I'm half speculating. I'm not. It's not completely speculation. But there were certain organizations or people that, uh, and one that I belong to that wanted kind of a separation. Going, we're not a martial mm. art. We're something. We're something completely different. Therefore, we want to distance ourselves from the uniforms, from the belts, from the things. This is and and it's it's certainly legitimate. And then they started okay introducing the pank, the patches, and the ranking systems and whatnot. Okay. Um. I think that, let's start with before we talk about belts, patches, all that stuff. Let's talk about ranking. I think mm. that ranking has value in terms of splitting up the curriculum, giving people goals. Um, I know where as an instructor, it's very useful. I know where my students are at. I know that, you know, they've done this in order, let's say, to get to the advanced class. I, I tested them. I was able to see their knowledge, give them feedback. It really adds structure to where they, I know that if they're, um, you know, if they're a blue belt now, I know exactly where they are, where their skill set is, where they need to train towards. And it's also very helpful if I'm visiting a gym that I don't know, or you know, if the students are not, I more or less know where they're at. So it has a very functional, uh, functional reason. Also for the students, for a goal. We need goals to keep on going forward. There's no like every learning, pretty much every Every learning school structure is split up into the ranks. In the army, we have ranks. Um, you know, when you're when you're you know in school, you're set up into grades. We know that you know first grade. You know, they learn math and English at a certain level. That that certainly helps. And um, you know, even when you're university, you've got your undergraduates, first year, second year. You've got you know third year statistics. Fourth year statistics, unfortunately, which I had to learn as part of my psychology degree, which is awful. But even if I tell you, okay, I'm learning fourth year statistics, even if you know nothing about statistics, it says something to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. It also sets expectations. So it's useful as a training tool. Okay. Let's start with that. Mm -hmm. Now, otherwise, it's all chaos. Otherwise, okay, rock up into the class. We say, okay, there are no belts or ranks on the street. So what the hell? Am I going to teach you? And how do we have some sort of um, uniformity, right? Because me, I, I'm not just an instructor anymore. I, I run and I teach a lot of instructors around the world, mm -hmm. right? How can I make sure that everyone training under the instructors that I certify and that I oversee, how can I, how can I make sure that everyone is getting what they need? And it's not just up to, you know, Jim loves teaching guns and Bob, um, I don't know why I've made all my instructors rednecks, but... Um, <laughs> Um, whatever Bob uh, loves knife defenses and uh, Michael he's got a purple belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu so he just teaches them ground 
stuff. Mm -hmm. How can I get some uniformity to make sure that everybody's getting not what their instructor feels like teaching on that day, but actually what I, as you know, as the as the person who wrote the syllabus and who's bringing, understand that it's the the due process of developing as a student. Mm -hmm. So let's start with that. I think you can't teach somebody a skill set that they're going to learn for for a few years if not that, without having structure to it, and the structure is the ranks. Mm. Belts or patches, okay? I I grew up uh, belts as a kid, then we switched over organization, switched on to patches, so I had patches, um, and I got used to patches, and I liked patches, and it was good. Mm. One day, I was actually in Australia, and I was visited by, um, by a guy who's probably 75, 70, 75, and he was very, an Israeli guy, okay, an Israeli guy in Australia. He rocked up to the gym. I was teaching one day. He wanted to talk to me. I was talking to him. He said, look, I'd like to come and join, see a little bit what you guys do. Um, I used to train Krav Maga. This guy, he was, he was a doctor of uh, sports psychology, very accomplished person. He was actually the, he, he, he taught sports psychology in the Wingate Institute in Israel for a long time. Mm. Um, he was the head psychologist for the Sydney Olympic team in the 2000 Olympics, right? Mm. And now what he does is he travels the world and he trains billionaire families on um, um, on game strategy mm. for business. Yeah. So this this guy was a very smart, accomplished person. And he tells me about the black belt that he got from Imi. At the time, mm. he was he grew up in Israel. He trained Krav Maga. That's why he came to here. And he got a black belt from Imi. And he's going on when I got my black belt and my black belt and my black belt and my black belt. And this was 40 years ago, if, if not that. And he goes and he keeps on talking about his black belt. And I go, wow, what, what power does this thing have? Nobody talks about. So in the, for whoever's not familiar, um, you know, the, nobody has to explain what a black belt is. Mm. But in the patch system, we have practitioner level one, two, three, four, five, graduate level one, two, three, four, five. And then we have expert levels and master levels. I could not imagine a, uh, uh, an accomplished 75-year-old with a, with, a, with a PhD coming to talking to somebody half his age about his uh, graduate five or expert yeah. level two patch that he got from Emi. It doesn't yeah. work that way. The yeah. belts have power because it's internationally recognized. Everybody knows what a black belt is. Nobody knows what an expert level patch is. Okay? Mm. So... Why, as an instructor, why do I have to invent the wheel, right? Yeah. When Krav Maga was young, it made sense. We had to be different. We wanted to show that we were different from others because we weren't a martial art because we didn't want accidentally anybody to think that we were like judo or anything else. But yeah. I think Krav Maga is mature enough now. We can go full circle and we can go, um, well, the belt system works. It works in jujitsu phenomenally well i think i think brazilian jiu-jitsu because there's so far they've been to a certain extent able to keep the integrity of the belt system mm. somebody who's a black belt in the brazilian jiu-jitsu system is a black belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu yeah. like if you get on the mat and roll with them if you're not if you're not a very very experienced brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner let's say if you're not a purple a brown belt at least chances are it doesn't matter what school you come from and what school they come from they're gonna they're gonna choke you out pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it works. 
and 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 it works historically in kung fu karate it did get watered down like i remember as a kid in america i remember some first grade uh, karate black belts walking around that's bad when that happens and the great but generally as a system the belt system works and the moment we started to bring that into our clubs at the beginning everybody was looking like why are you wearing belts who wears belts and i pull out a, a photo of imi and i go well imi wore a belt imi w- never wore a patch so don't tell me that that belts aren't part of krav maga yeah yeah let's start with that but the next thing i saw was that the retention rate in our civilian schools of experienced students went up ridiculously up because people wanted to stick around the mm. belts are visible the patches are not right yeah. everybody wants to get earn their black belt right everybody who comes into the class and you go hey michael who started at the same time with me he's already a purple belt i'm still at my blue belt i'm not going to stop training i'm going to train harder so that i can get my purple belt at least i'll get there because you know i owe it to myself so competition has power and at the end of the day that's all i care about all i care about is being able to give my students the skill set that they need in order to protect themselves in order to feel better about themselves in order to become better more contributing members of society and part of that is that they need to show up and they need to come as often as possible to training and they need to train really really hard and being focused and yeah. the belt does that so yeah it works yeah but it's always uh because i'm in north america some people's ideas of how long it like just from a skill perspective to actually really be a black belt they're like you know you the person who comes in how long till my black belt i'm like i don't know eight fifteen years how much are you going to train and they're just like i want it now it's no <laughs> even if i know crop's supposed to be simple it's just a matter of skill development you just got to put in the time and a lot of people don't want to hear that occasionally you know you get someone i don't know it's probably even more confusing in israel um i'll get someone who's been doing krav maga with an organization for a while or martial arts I'm like i want to do the advanced classes i'm like no you got to work your way up the system i'm like if you're good enough i'll cut i'll cut down the time dramatically but it, you know as you were saying the belt for me is is a like a milestone marker i need you to know the basic curriculum that i'm teaching to do the next curriculum because it works off of the basic stuff and if you come from another organization that does something completely different you may just be getting confused and a lot of people are like i don't want to have to go through that again i'm like well you can stay in the white belt class if you want <laughs> you know well, when people come with that attitude they tend not to last that yeah. long anyways yeah. i mean if somebody comes in feels you know they're entitled to this or that like you know, I, I don't deal with that stuff that much nowadays, but mm. when, when I, you know, when, you know, a good 10 years ago, when, you know, when I was in the trenches, you know, running, you know, running, you know, the basic classes. And, and by the way, un, up until this day, I love teaching beginners. Like mm. I, I like teaching soldiers. I like teaching Krav Maga instructors. I love teaching beginners. And every once in a while, yeah, you have somebody who comes in and goes, um, I mean, how can I become an instructor? And I say, well, c- come tomorrow. Yeah, and they look at me and they're like, "And I'm like, no, like come to tomorrow's class and and we'll take it from there." Like, yeah. how do you even know you want to become like this is your first class? How do you know that you're that much into it? Like, it's going to take a lot of training and a long, long time and a lot of sacrifice, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears uh, to be able to reach that goal that you've set for yourself. How do you know that you even you know that you even that interest and you want to put it in? Um, you got to have a little bit more experience. So just you know, just focus on on uh, just focus on the now 
Yeah, patience, one of the hardest to get human attributes, right? But yeah, look, I, I, had, I had a student who was so, you know, he said, look, I've been doing Thai boxing for, for this many years and I've got a black belt in karate and like, I'm going to lose patience in the beginner's class. I know, I just know that. I know myself. Um, and like, there was no talking down this person and I was, I was, I'm pretty relaxed. Like I'm Israeli. We're pretty relaxed as far as things, these things go. And I go, look, I, I don't care. You pay the same tuition fees, beginners and, and, uh, and intermediate students. Um, I'm telling you, you'll get what you need in the beginner's class. If you want to come into the intermediate class, like I'm telling you, it's not the right thing, but you know, it's, it's your money. Came to yeah. the intermediate class, got his ass kicked yeah. really, really badly. And yeah. our guys are fine. Like we're not, we're not out for blood. Like it was yeah. just, it's, you know, intermediate training with me. It's, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and he wasn't up for it. So yeah, he, he didn't last very long. His ego couldn't take it. His yeah. ego couldn't take it. His, his, his ego told him he, be, he, he belonged into the, into the advanced classes, but his skill, he couldn't, he couldn't keep up with the pace with the intermediates. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ego, the it's, other it's, thing. <laughs> you got to have humility. You got to have yeah. humility to be able to, to be able to be a good student, even to be able to be a good instructor. The starting point is humility. If your ego is too big, um, you're not going to get very far. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes complete sense. So now you have to go soon. Uh, is there anything that you would like to cover, talk about that we missed? Something you thought was important, Kramaga or otherwise? No, I, I think that's. I think that's. That's pretty much it. I think we did. We did a pretty, pretty good job. That's good. Yeah. No, I like. <clears throat> I I love it when the instructors are taking the intellectual approach. I mean, it's very much me, and I know it's not not uh, everyone's cup of tea, but. Uh, I think it's really important in the complexities of modern society to really integrate that a lot more because we can't just go around punching people anymore. No, look, there's, there's, there's a time, there's a time and place for everything, right? Yeah. If you're coming into one of my schools and you know, this part of the regular evening classes, um, we're coming there to train. I'm not going to give you a lecture about, uh, you know, we've, if we got, if it's a one hour class, one and a half hour minute class, I don't have time to lecture you for 20 minutes about, um, about intricacies of violence. That's what you, you will get, you will get bits and pieces throughout the techniques or not, and then it will make the big picture. But that's exactly why I do, you know, that's why I, I, you know, I do these podcasts. That's why I've set up a podcast of my own. Um, mm. I've got the training that we do, Krav Maga Israel, the training camps that we've got people coming in from all over the world. Um, and then we do a deep dive, like in, in the training camps that I run uh, for, for civilians. Then you know we've got we've got people who are absolute beginners to intermediate students, even black belts who come in, and, and we'll do you know eight hours a day of training. And mm. over there, we really, really you know we're living, breathing Krav Maga while we're traveling around Israel, and we really do a deep dive of the techniques and also everything around. We do tactical first aid mm. over there, for example. Um, that really gets so it's different forms in the day to day evening classes. That might not always be the best uh, situation, but in the long-term Krav Maga training camps that I run in Israel on the instructor's training program, it's very important for me that the people who who, who train with me and who who teach Krav Maga at their, own, at their own countries, they really have to have a good understanding of violence. So in those situations, that's where, that's where we do the deep dives. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, how can people find you online? Cause like, you can put out your your new podcast. I'll listen to it as well. <laughs> so Instagram, that, actually, right? That that's actually been a lot of fun. Like the, the this podcast, um, it was just I 
there were a whole bunch of people that I wanted to talk to just because yeah. I wanted to talk to. Like it yeah. was just, it it's was a Jewish selfish. <laughs> it was a selfish pursuit. Okay. There yeah. was things that I was really interested in and some authors that like uh, uh, Tim Larkin, mm. um, author of uh, what violence is the answer I've always, I've loved his books. Um, so it was a great excuse to just, I mean, wh when can you get somebody and just sit down for two hours, three hours and talk about a topic that really interests you? Um, you got to have a really good excuse. And I, I found that the podcasts are a brilliant excuse to find people who are really interested and just, you know, on the other side of the planet and just do like a Zoom call or something like that and just go a deep dive. So uh, I got to talk to Rory Miller. Um, oh, nice. I got to talk to... Um, uh, to so many uh, interesting people from all walks of life. Tony Blauer, I recently did one. And, and it's fun because you, you talk to these people and you kind of build a connection. I've had so much. So this podcast, it's actually hasn't, it's going to be, I've recorded a, a, a shit ton of episodes. It's actually going to go live finally next week. So yeah. what's um, it called? So people know what to look for. Easy. I wasn't very creative. It's called the Ron Engelman podcast. All right. Super so, easy then. Um, yeah, I, I, maybe I skimped out on, on sitting down and finding a name, but that's pretty easy. I already have the website set up, Um Yeah, you can find the Instagram, Krav Maga Israel, a lot of the instructor courses and the training programs. Also, not very imaginative, Krav Maga Israel.com. So, yeah. um, Israelis yeah, and names. It's like when you look at the Hebrew translations of uh, movie titles, I'm just like, uh, I cannot believe it. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for coming on, and I'm I'm sure we'll be in contact, and whenever I can be in Israel next, uh, which we'll we'll see what happens, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll certainly drop by. No problem, Jonathan. It's been an it's been an absolute uh, pleasure, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You're listening to the Warriors Day. Warriors Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions.